0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Delta X podcast with Ellen Shu. These are conversations with changemakers, innovators, and self-starters who have made their mark on the world at a young age. Breaking down the journeys of those who are changing the status quo and building the future today. Knowledge is power. Now more than ever.
1: Welcome back to Delta X podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Hsu. And today we're gonna to be talking about, you know, a, lot, a little bit of brain stuff, um, BCIs, neuro-robotics, and um, also a lot of research. So my guest today is Okezu bell He does neuromedical engineering research at Harvard. He's also worked on machine learning at Microsoft and the MIT Media Lab, and computational genetics and genomics at the Stanford School of Medicine. But I'm sure Okezu can do a much better job of introducing himself. What have you worked on and what gets you excited?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'll start with like what gets me excited. I think the thing that gets me excited the most is the intersection between a variety of different fields and kind of just how they can come together to you either create a solution to something or just exploring it, which is why I think I liked research the most because I wanted something that would allow me to have sort of like a creative medium, but at the same time still be involved in like my primary interests, which are like science engineering. Um, so most, most recently, um, like you mentioned, I joined the MIT media lab, which was like a crazy experience for me. Um, it was like one of the top places ever that I've ever wanted to like, you know, be involved with. So when I got a response in the email and like everything ended up working out, it was super cool. Um, so I actually, the one I joined is the fluid interfaces group. So their main focus is like creating different sort of Cognitive tools, they like to call them to kind of help humanity in a variety of different ways. So sometimes it might actually be a brain oriented project, but what um, me and this other, um, like a doctoral student at the MIT Media Lab, are working on right now is a project that's actually on the website already. It's called Macanoia, Machine of Multiple Me. Um, but we're trying to expand on that. So we're creating like kind of different simulations of how a person would behave given their like, um, sentiment data. So like emotional data, just previous data about them and then creating like future or different versions of them. Um, and then using that to kind of inform their future decisions. So it's like, if you could talk to yourself, if you became a doctor, what would you act like, think like, um, things of that nature? And so what we've been doing is we've been kind of generating both, from an image perspective of what you would look like and then of course like using things like gpt3 to get um, like audio and semantic information so like being able to basically talk to yourself which is really funny kind of like we're talking to each other Um, and then outside of that i've been working on another project which is kind of more on the bci side which is building a prosthetic simply put um, so right now, I'm actually reviewing some of the things for Sophia the robot, kind of like her limbs and arms, which is fun. Um, but outside of that, I am currently building my own prosthetic, um, which is why I've been doing research with Harvard Medical School, um, mainly just learning spectral analysis techniques, like to analyze brain signals with a lot of um, like high throughput um and also like very in-depth so just looking at different features of like brain signals which has been surprisingly interesting Uh, at first i thought it would be just like a lot of math like almost very tiring but it's turned out to be like a really fun experience sometimes you just get like this rainbow and you have to understand what it means um on a spectrogram right so it's just really really fun yeah
1: yeah, that's really cool. I mean, we should definitely talk about um, and touch upon your robotics more. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of videos of Sophia, the robot. So pretty cool yeah. in that aspect. Um, but I think for now, I'd love to learn more about like how you're able to, um, I guess, create these opportunities for yourself because I assume that, you know, at MIT Media Lab, they're not really having, like expecting high schoolers um, to come join the team. Um, and they're doing all sorts of cool things too. I saw the other day, they're 3D printing like pasta that yeah. when you put it into water um, that sounded yeah. that's not awesome to me um, but yeah so how, how do you usually engineer these types of opportunities for yourself
2: mm-hmm. yeah i think the biggest thing is not having any fear like i know on the media lab site specifically they say like no high school students basically <laughs> <laughs> um, so i was really lucky in that respect But honestly, I think one of the biggest things you can do for yourself is like really putting yourself out there. So if you know it's a place that's like slightly more rigid, one of the best things you can do is kind of like um, activate the opportunities that are already close to you. Right. So I don't live in Boston. I live in Pennsylvania. So it's like we're still in New England, but it's still pretty far away. Um, So it wasn't like the immediate place that was like, oh, I can just join because I live in Boston. Right. It was um, a more difficult virtual thing. Um, So I really started out like. Getting different lab experiences, contacting people at universities. Um, there was even one point where I contacted like so many professors from a university and none of them responded. Um, so it's just like kind of getting over that, um, I think, is the biggest thing. Like sometimes they're just really busy, sometimes they, don't want to deal with a young person who just wants to do research but has no clue what they're doing um so like starting off with things like science fair etc but then if you really want to like take it to the next level and get these opportunities I think the biggest thing is writing how you can give other people value right because I think one of the biggest things that uh too often happens is like you're trying to extract value from these experiences of course you know typically you're underqualified as a high school student to be joining a lab in the first place so you really have to say like what unique perspectives you might bring or the main things that you want to learn. So I think just writing a detailed enough email that shows your passion, maybe some knowledge you have, and then also why it's important that you join this place specifically. Like there are thousands of really great labs across the world. But for me, MIT Media Lab really stuck out to me because of their like unique academic focuses. Like there aren't many labs that are focusing on something like social justice through technological mediums like there are not many like labs like the poetic justice lab and there aren't many labs like the fluid interfaces lab where they're working on a variety of things but all towards this common goal of like enhancing human cognition so i think yeah that's like a really long-winded answer but to sum it up it's like being detailed being thorough and also having some prior experiences to help like boost boost your resume if that makes sense
1: Yeah. So were these like mainly, do you think the main factor was like a good cold email or like your past experiences? Since I did see you have like a lot of research experience as well.
2: Yeah. I think it was honestly a mixture of both. So (laughs) I really started off in like the cellular agriculture field, just like culturing proteins from um, cells, like uh, just taking small biopsies from animals and using those to make different types of protein instead of, you know, like cutting up a whole cow to make meat. Uh, you could just use its cells and grow um, meat like it's muscle tissue. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that helped me was kind of having that prior background. So it all kind of clicked together. Like a lot of what I had done was already in like the cellular agriculture field from a variety of perspectives. Like even now I'm kind of still involved. So I'm working with uh, this organization called the cellular agriculture society I'm helping them to write like a cellular agriculture textbook, which is like the first of its kind, which is super cool. Um, and hopefully it'll help people get more into the field um, like researchers, for example. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that definitely helped. Um, but I think also it's like cellular agriculture and neuroscience aren't necessarily similar at all. Um, so I think the, the first step is writing a good email and maybe having some experience behind that just to like, you know, like kind of impress the person that you're emailing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, one other thing I try not to do is like overstress the fact that like I'm a high school student, I want to make it more about the research and more about my interests and the, the, about the fact that I'm like a teenager or whatever. So uh-huh. um, I think that is also helpful because it shows this like kind of sense of maturity. Sometimes they might forget that you're a high school student and add you to their lab unknowingly, too. So, uh-huh. that, so that I- out. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think that and then also when you have your first call with the person, leaving a good impression on the call is something that's huge. Um, one of the biggest things you want like I think one of the biggest indicators that you're leaving a good impression is like when you're both excited about what you're talking about and they're honestly willing to help you uh, like and they, they say that, too. So I think one of the biggest things like asking really good questions too, like knowing what you're talking about, even if you've never worked in a BCI lab, you can still you can still know about various topics you could know about EEG, EEG channels, how to collect um, neural information. You know, a lot of like scientific fields are moving computational now anyway. Um, So I'm sure there are like different ways you can get into pretty much any field on your computer, Um, even just aside from like looking things up, you could probably program something, et cetera. Um, So I'd say knowing how to code also is like a really big skill because it opens up so many doors for you, like in terms of just doing independent research and independent projects first so that you can still like get a kind of a taste of that field so that when you're talking to someone in the field, you can actually have like a really educated conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, like, one thing this reminds me of is how, like, all your experience kind of sort of compounds. And over time, like, if you get started on one research, it makes the next one easier. And then, like, the mm-hmm. more experience you have under the belt, it keeps getting easier and easier. And um, your experience tends to grow as well as, like, your interest in a specific area. Um, mm-hmm. So where did that kind of cascade effect start for you? Like, what, what was your first, like, break into research? Um, and also, maybe you could also tell me a bit about Um, where you actually conducted it. Cause I'm really curious, did you do cell agriculture in just like in your garage or did you do it in a lab? Um, But yeah, that sounds like a really, a really cool project.
2: Yeah, for sure. So I think my first main research experience was actually at home. So uh, basically what I was doing was I was like, uh, you can get these, you can get like small different types of Um, samples that you can actually get at home Um, a lot of people like buying like gene editing kits etc I actually didn't do that I um, I followed this one project that I'd seen online bought all the similar materials and then was able to do like um, not culturing meat of course but I was able to culture things like from gelatin um, like uh, materials which is really fun Um, so I think working with anything wet lab you have to be careful and you probably won't find everything you need online um, but if you're working with, like, um, non-living biological material, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's kind of like an oxymoron saying non-living biological. But um, just anything that's not, like, currently alive or um, is mobile, you can you can definitely work with that at home. Um, so, yeah, it all started my house. I also did, like, a lot of programming stuff. Um, so that was fun. I do, like, research from both a computational and wet lab perspective. Um, And then after I'd done that, that's when I started contacting, like, local laboratories, um, places like that. I actually didn't work in a lab for a while. I think my first real lab work experience was with the UPIT. UPIT, Yeah, I would say it's with UPIT, um, partially because they're close enough by to me that I can actually, like, interact with them on a higher level. And that was all on um like prosthetics robotics stuff so it was actually like way after my cell ag phase that I started working with them but I did still do like scientific work like I worked with higher stakes I was doing like a lot of literature research um things of that nature um some computational work um but yeah I think I had like a, a weird experience too because I started during COVID um so it was like Well, I guess I started like mid COVID because I didn't really realize that I wanted to do research until like COVID started hitting. Um, So then I didn't get the chance to like go into a lot of my local university labs and work with them until much later. Um, So, but I still got the experience. Like, I still got to leverage kind of this new digital landscape that we had, like being able to contact people and you being able to do like virtual internships, um, which is great because you can now work with like any company anywhere because they'll just be on a Zoom call with you, et cetera um but but yeah that's basically where it started it all started in my house um it kind of spiraled out of control uh, until now
1: (laughs) definitely spiraled out of control in a very very great way (laughs) yeah I I guess that kind of leads me into another thing I was curious about um you've done a lot of like research in different places um Mm -hmm. how do you how do you balance like the different projects you're working on
2: yeah that's a really good question I think one of the biggest things I try to do is like um, have a, a document that has everything I'm currently doing, everything I might want to do, um, and then like everything I need to do. So mm-hmm. I call it like my everything document. And then each day I kind of set out different priorities of things that I want to get done. Um, but I think one of the biggest things you can do for yourself is like whenever you pick up something new, have a plan for what a start and finish look like. So that way you can have different goals that you want to meet each day, every other day, every week. Um, which is really helpful. Um uh, so what I like to do is like plan out everything that I'm, like every new project that I start have like at least like a start to finish plan or a, a start to like a a half finish, like finish the project. Maybe you don't stop working there, but you finish like one thing um, and then move to the next thing. So, yeah, I'd say that's like my biggest life hack. I don't really time block and things like that. Um, which I actually, I still need to work on like time management stuff. Um, but I think what's worked for me thus far has been kind of having a roadmap for each of the different things that I do that way. I'm able to cross something new off each day and like, make sure that I'm still meeting deadlines and goals, et cetera.
1: Mm -hmm yeah, and is there any other life hacks you have for like learning, for um like being able to pick up topics, um especially ones that like cellag I assume, like and neurobotics they're not easy fields to get into,
2: yeah, for sure. Um, So I think one of the biggest things can be like joining programs. So for me, I joined TKS, which is where I was kind of introduced to a lot of these um, slightly more, I'd say, esoteric technologies. Like we all know about like AI, machine learning, all that, like the buzzwords. Um, But when you get into like more interdisciplinary fields like Cellag, Um, it starts to become a little more murky. So joining a program like that is helpful because um, sometimes you might not even be surrounded by like cell ag experts, but it's just nice to be in a community where a lot of people are interested in the similar thing. You can learn with them, um, things like that. Um, But if you can't join a program or you're just like, for some reason, it's like too much of a commitment. Another thing you can do is like really great internet searches, um, just deep searches. Like if you start in one area, Even though people like schools like to knock Wikipedia all the time, it's definitely a great source for learning um, where you can like go down a rabbit hole. You can find out so many different things and then it'll ultimately lead you to like a really good YouTube video. So that's like one of my my top learning, um, especially for like fields that aren't so in your face. Um, Definitely Wikipedia has been very helpful. Um, and I think outside of that, uh, this actually deals with school. It's like, if you're taking, if you do like AP or IB at your school, that can be a really great opportunity for you to delve into like some more advanced topics. Like I know in my biology class, we actually, like one of the chats I had with my biology teacher, um, we were like talking about optogenetics, which is like how you can you can edit the genetic content of a nerve cell, so like a neuron, and get it to respond to light, and then from there you can activate the neuron in so many different ways. Like they're helping cure blindness with it and things like that. So it was during our genetics chapter that I actually learned about that. So like taking your courses and what you've been learning and actually just applying them, um, even as much as like school can become monotonous sometimes and things like that. I think if you're really excited about what you're learning, you can make it interesting by like going like one step deeper because, you know, these are meant to be as much as they say they're like college level courses. It's still meant to be like very introductory um, in a sense. So I think one of the biggest things you can do is like peel back the layers and really get into like a specific discipline. Um, And then that ultimately leads you to like know what type of research you're interested in. Then you can start contacting labs, et cetera. So I think everything kind of ends up connecting, um, especially when you're interested in something like STEM, which is like, I'd say, it's hard in the sense of learning, but it's easy in the sense of like, there's so many people doing it um, and so many different people who you can talk to. um, And LinkedIn is also a great medium for that. And also Twitter. Um, I don't use Twitter that much, but I found that a lot of people are talking on Twitter um, and a lot of people like to meet on Twitter too. So if you have Twitter and you're like active on it, that can be really helpful as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned about optogenetics is actually a great transition into talking more about, you know, the brain and uh, your work with BCIs. Um, so I, I saw that you've worked on some pretty cool projects with BCIs, like brain and muscle controlled cars, um, mm-hmm. music players. And now, like you mentioned with your prosthetic device. Um, so can, I guess, can you just talk about some of your projects and, um, also maybe like what gets you like interested in BCI for people who might not like be familiar with it? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So I guess for anyone who doesn't know what BCIs are, they're essentially just like different ways you can interface with the brain um, Thus, like brain computer interface. It's any me- method in which you can you receive kind of brain signals or neural information in any shape or form. And then you use that to control something physical, um, like a car, for example. So all of our all of our like neural processing is done with electricity, essentially. So it's all electric and chemical. So when we can record these chemical signals, what we can do is we can say, well, this certain range of Hertz um, is correlated with some sort of movement or thing that we're thinking about. And whenever we break that threshold, um, we can control the contraction of an arm or like the playing of a music um, and your muscles do the exact, a similar thing where they generate electricity when they're stimulated and move because, you know, our brain controls our muscles too. So <laughs> it's okay. It kind of just works that way. Uh, but yeah, I think the reason why I got so interested in BCIs is because I was, I was always already interested in the brain, but I thought it would be even more interesting to look at ways in which we can not influence the brain, but instead influence the things around us with our brains. Because I think it's a really unique modality because our brain is so complex and it has so many different like ways of conveying what we want that it would be actually more effective to just read our neural signals and have that materialize in the real world. Um, of course, we're not really at that stage at all yet, but uh, just like being able to work on something um, along those lines has been really interesting so yeah like you mentioned I started off with some um I'd say like more simple projects in terms of like or simpler projects Mm -hmm. I mean English teacher if he sees this is going to be very angry I said that (laughs) (laughs) no but some simpler projects I started with were like just controlling like different objects so like controlling a music player controlling a remote control car um, different different things like that, just controlling various things on my computer, like getting my mouse to move, um, random stuff. And then I started kind of getting into a more um, clinical application of BCI. So A lot of what we're doing now in terms of like medicine, or I guess what researchers are doing now, is um, intracortical BCIs, which is what uh, Neuralink is, right? So they embed it within your brain, um, like an implant, for example. And then while it's inside of your brain, they can connect, they can collect like really um, high fidelity signals because, you know, it's in closer proximity to what's happening in your brain. So therefore, the signals are better. Um, and then they can manipulate a variety of things. So um, I actually did chat with like a lot of people in the different spaces, including a person from Neuralink. She was really nice. Um, And she like, she kind of got me into this whole idea of using BCIs for medical applications. And so one of the things I noticed was that a lot of prosthetics right now are not really great for especially like transhumeral amputees. So people have lost like their shoulder um, and below or like below the elbow amputees as well. So just people have lost any part of their arm. Really, Um, I noticed that the prosthetic industry is not necessarily falling behind, but I have noticed that a lot of the current prosthetics today aren't helpful. Like it's a lot of body powered control, so it can be really difficult to use. Um, When it is myoelectric, it's extremely expensive um, and sometimes it's not very accurate. Um, And what I noticed was like a lot of these really, really advanced prosthetics were still only being used in like clinical trials, kind of not necessarily deployed solutions yet. Um, So I wanted to develop a prosthetic that could be deployed sooner. So I decided to do something that was non-invasive. So basically what I'm doing is I'm attaching electrodes to an amputee's residual limb, um, doing a whole bunch of things that I described previously, which is like spectral analysis is a great technique for analyzing neural signals. Um, But more specifically, I'm using reinforcement learning to kind of collect these signals, determine what the amputee wants to do with the arm, and then that will correspond to like specific movements. On the arm itself, um, and then in terms of the arm, I'm also doing some like mechanical, um, mechanical changes with it because I've noticed that a lot of prosthetics are very rigid. They're not like compliant. They can't bend properly. You know, the human body is very, very interesting in the sense that it's it's rigid, but it's also compliant. Like we have bones, which are kind of flexible, but they're still they're not brittle, but they're still like dense and hard or they're really not dense either. They're just like, they're just hard components of our body. Um, so when you can, when you can move, when you can move with like a lot of flexibility, like I can bend my fingers backwards. That's something that's really, really amazing that a prosthetic can't do, or at least current prosthetics don't do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm mixing soft and articulated robotic components. So soft being compliant, bendable and articulated being more structural and rigid um, and then combining those so that I can create a similar um, human-like bending effect. And that's, all kind of encapsulated in this thing called anthropomorphism, which is like just modeling things after the human body. Um, so that was a very long explanation of what I'm doing, which is just building a prosthetic um, that can be controlled by uh, amputee muscle signals. But, um, but yeah, that's like the, my main project now. I started off with a couple of different things. Like there was one point where I wanted to, I was wanting to like cure different diseases, um, doing neurology research, Um, which I'm still very interested in, but we'll see where that goes. Um, But right now, yeah, I'm working on building that prosthetic. Um, Just got some IRB approvals to do some testing on humans, which is very fun. Um, And then I have, I actually do have like one of my old models of the prosthetic, like sitting behind me. Um, It's not composed, but I can definitely show. Yeah, I'd love
1: to see it.
2: You guys can't see this but it's like different (laughs) 3D printed components of my prosthetic, Um, kind of like all apart. So this is like a wrist fixture, an arm. And of course, this is the hand. Um, Thank you to the, of course, this is all not uh, assembled right now, but the, the UPIT lab, the rehab neural engineering lab that I mentioned previously helped me print these. So that was really nice of them. Um, But yeah, it's also really great to like do something like a prosthetic because I'm learning so many different things like SolidWorks, um, which is just like a CAD uh, modeling software, which is super fun. Of course, live um, signal processing, which is really, really great skill if you ever want to work in neuroscience. Um, So, so yeah, I've definitely been learning a lot with these projects. Um, I'm also part of the Massason Foundation, which is like by the founder of SoftBank. So through that, I'm getting like a couple of funding things. Like I'm gonna buy a 3D printer, um, a couple of like neural interfacing tools. Um, so with that funding, I'll be able to do a lot of research in-house too, which is very fun. But yeah, that is that is my main project.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really incredible. And it's it sounds like what you're doing is very interdisciplinary, like what, th- mm-hmm. what you mentioned for like understanding the human brain and also, um, like modeling, designing all these different things coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love, I love how you also talked about your process to doing it. Um, through, like building smaller, like more fun, um, like projects and then moving up to your current project. Um, mm-hmm. and I also saw on your website that you mentioned, uh, one of your the adjectives you use to describe yourself was autodidactic, which I thought was very fitting um, since you've learned a lot, obviously on your own as like a high schooler. Um, so besides like building projects or um, like learning through projects, is there any other place that you you usually find resources or learning, learning things that, um, you know, are above the high school level?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the main thing I love to do is like read. So my parents are engineers, um, which is helpful of course. So we get like IEEE magazines and things like that. So looking through those sometimes, um, a lot of virtual and digital reading don't tell anyone, but I do tend to like pirate some of my books. So like these <laughs> online, like the super thick, like nature, nature books that are sometimes like thousands of dollars. Like one of the huh. ones I read, I remember it was like, it was like $1,000. And I was like, I'd rather just like, if I can get it online for free, I'd rather just do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I did. Um, it's like the handbook of heuristics, I believe it's called. And it has so many different things from like genetic algorithms to machine learning. Um, so that's a great way to learn of course when you're like getting into something like um the handbook of heuristics it's going to be very technical so a lot of what i like to do is like highlight things like even in like lower school and they tell you to like highlight things you don't know um it's definitely a very good skill because then you can just search them up um and given your background of course you you have to have already known something to be like reading this book in general so i'm sure with just a simple definition you'll be able to kind of understand what they're what they're conveying so Mm -hmm. reading is definitely like one of the number one ways to learn um and then also just observing other people like i mentioned it's great to make friends and like outside of school and in different programs so that way you can learn from them too um kind of like we're doing now um it's a great it's a gr- definitely a great way just like talking to people kids your age cuz there are a shocking amount of young individuals like me and ellen who are like doing research um and like interested in computer science etc um so definitely talking to them can be great or just like having linkedin i think is helpful just because people post a lot on there you can find new things like Recently, because of CES happening, people are like posting, like showing off their new inventions from their companies, and it's all been really cool. Like, I saw, I think it was like a Mika robot, and it looked so human. Like, um, it was like this gray robot. It honestly looked kind of creepy to me, but it was really <laughs> cool because its its face was like very well articulated. It looks so human-like. Um, so, I think seeing things like that, um, even if you're not like currently involved in a research opportunity, is just really helpful because. When you learn something like that, then you can start doing more specific searches, find more information. Um, Kurtz Gazette is also a great YouTube channel that I love to watch. Yes, a lot of people love Kurtz Gazette, so I always mention it.
1: Animations on point. They make me feel so happy.
2: Yeah, they're awesome. And I love how they have like the little birds throughout the video.
0: Oh, so cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, but Kurtz Gazette's definitely awesome. Um, Insider is a really great YouTube channel as well. So I think it's just a lot of like consuming content and then trying to use that content to like create something of your own. Mm -hmm. Um, What TKS likes to do is they like you to like do a like write articles. I I do a lot of writing myself. I like enjoy writing a lot, Um, but they do like a lot of article writing. um, And then you can do something like a replicate where you find a project that already exists and try to like do it again. I think that exercise is actually really great because it helps you learn and you also already have results to look at so that when you start your own project, you can kind of Understand the things you need to do, but but yeah, those are like my main my main learnings. I think a lot of it's just like observation. Media consumption is helpful. Um, maybe like scientific news can be helpful too, because um, a lot of times they talk about like random things that you might be interested in. Um, and then once you know what you've in- you're interested in or find something you're interested in, then being able to like, look it up and really learn about it is something helpful too. And of course, you know, books. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You've mentioned humanoid robots. And so <laughs> I know in the beginning, uh, I-, I promised that we would come back to that. Tell us more about Sophia, the robot, um, what you're excited about in that arena.
2: Yeah, for sure. So like I mentioned, it's really like a prosthetic thing that I'm doing with Sophia right now. So like looking at the new models for her arms and hands and um, trying to like stress test them, understand better ways um, that they can be used. And also with my prosthetic, um, rolling it out with like hopefully with NGOs in different places um, to get it to the people who need it the most. Um, Honestly, I think Sophia is really cool. Of course, there there are some videos that are pretty creepy of her like saying creepy things. So I think that was intentional by Hanson Robotics. Um, I actually, I talked to Dr. Hanson like, actually a little bit ago, it's been a while now, but um, essentially we were just chatting about like the the purpose of these and the whole idea is that like the world has been built for humans. So if we want to create assistive technology, we also have to build um, like systems that can adapt to human behavior. So building humanoid robots is a huge step in that. Of course, I think Sophia's kind of corporeal form, like her her body itself, why it's so human-like, I think is more of a, like a human appeasal thing. Like it's, it's easier to kind of interact with something that looks like you. Um, But honestly, I think one of the biggest things that they're doing is like trying to develop this um, machine cortex where it can understand emotion, understand what facial expressions mean, like actually make connections. Because a lot of times, even when we're analyzing like um, emotional data, it's not the computer actually understanding what you're feeling. It's just like it converting that to some sort of like general, like, like just converting it to some sort of general program so that it can kind of draw conclusions, but it's not actually understanding the correlation between like your body language and your emotions, what you're saying, etc. So creating different algorithms that can actually take in like various forms of human data and actually understand and interpret them is really, really interesting. And I think that's what got me into the brain as well. It's like, so many different connections that it makes like, you know, your neurons form new connections when you make memories, things like that. Um, So that's like one of the biggest things. And I think that's one of the the main points of building human-like robotics. I'm still waiting for Tesla to do something um, with that Tesla bot that they announced recently. I thought, I thought the, the mock-up of it looked really cool. Um, And also the human body is like great for actually like physically doing things. Like I think that's a mechanical side that I'm interested in with Sophia is like, because she's like shaped like a human she can actually perform very difficult tasks for robots like if you've seen Boston Dynamics you can see that they do have some like weird kind of shapes that they have to use Um, Their robots are really, really amazing, probably like one of the most advanced robots. Um, But they do have to like adapt certain forms and shapes so that they can jump and hop and skip and lift up boxes. So when you have a human like robot system that's like fully actuated, meaning it can move in all these different areas, there's an endless amount of activities that it can do. But of course, you know, biology isn't that easy to replicate with nuts and bolts and screws and machine learning. So (laughs) it'll take a while before we reach that point.
1: Yeah, and besides it being like incredibly cool how we can pretty much create such a realistic humanoid-looking robot, um, mm-hmm. what are the what are what is like the the main reason why we would want to create these things? Like, is it to you know serve as assistants um, to do like more manual labor things? I'm just mm-hmm. really curious about that.
2: Yeah, to so take over the human race and create a new race that no i'm just
1: kidding (laughs) that was what that is what would like Sophia the robot would say though
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) We us not ask her anymore (laughs) yeah exactly but yeah i think i think the main reason behind like giving human robots human-like faces um giving them actual facial features is so that they can connect with human beings i think that's been one of like the biggest um kind of difficult to understand aspects of robotics is like, like this whole Turing test, um, problem where we're trying to create something that's so human, like it can actually blend in with human beings. Um, and I think like, like I said before, like the world has been designed for, for us. So of course, creating something that at least resembles us is useful, but even beyond that, if you want to create something that's can do like therapeutic things, like, um, like be your therapist or help you. Um, it would be helpful that they didn't look like a big hunk of metal or a screen that they they had like human emotions, human features, um, and were, were kind of somewhat like you. Um, people also, there have been like some studies showing that people like, um, things that look exactly like them too. So even creating like like clonal copies of them, um, like from a robotic perspective, um, could be really interesting like as a companion or someone that they can interact with um, or even someone that like who wants to interact with themselves. I believe like one famous actress, she did this thing where she had like a robotic version of her constructed and then put in interviews um, and waited to see like real interviews, like with real journalists and then waited for the journalists to notice that it wasn't actually her, that it was a robot. And some of them got fooled. Um, (laughs) So it's it's things like that um, that are really interesting. Ultimately, down the line, I do think that um, the people might stop pouring like so much money into making like actual faces, um, but that some robots with like very human-like features will exist, kind of to be um, ambassadors or things like that. It sounds very weird talking about it, um, <laughs> largely because I feel like it's so far away, but I think the, the main point behind it is just to create or see the bounds at which we can kind of replicate the way humans act, behave, and look like. Um, with a goal of kind of implementing those in like a variety of different areas. So I doubt that we'll have like a bunch of Sophia's just like walking around all the time, like being people's assistants, but instead we'll use like different parts of Sophia, like her code, maybe her arms, her legs, um, when she gets legs, um, kind of using those, um, in different areas for a variety of purposes, whether it be in industry or in healthcare.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how you mentioned like there's both practical and kind of like emotional mm-hmm. um reasons for wanting like robots to assimilate better into, you know, like human society. Um yeah. it's, it's it's very interesting thing about how someday we might r- like talk to a robot friend or like I don't know, have like a robot robot therapist and stuff like that. Um but I, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting time to live in and maybe yeah. we'll even live when like we will even be living when that happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I have one final question that's kind of a more like lighthearted one. Um, but I, I, I saw that a really cool video on your channel Um, is one where you were playing Gary Kasparov in, in chess. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really amazing. Um, And I guess other than uh, explaining kind of the backstory behind how that happened, um, what are some other like you just unique life experiences that you've been able to uh, like think back and remember?
2: Yeah. Um, So yeah, playing Gary Kasparov, that was super cool. Um, When I was younger, I used to do like a lot of competitive chess. Now, not so much, but it was still very fun. Like, I think I still have my, a bit of my game. I lost, of course. Fortunately, um, I still remember the mistake I made. I shouldn't have castled um, in that game. What was funny is that he actually played um, a defense. I play like this opening called the Tiger Modern, and he played an attack that a lot of people actually used to play against me. So I thought I was like, "Wow, I could actually win this." And Then he started making all these crazy moves, and I was just like, "No." <laughs> so yeah, that that went down the tubes, but it was still super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the like other interesting experiences that I've had. Um, I met the founder of BLM at the same event at Web Summit. That was super awesome. Yeah. Just like, I think meeting people has been like the craziest thing. Um, One of the funny things that happened was like, I joined the perfect days sustainability board um, later helped to found their Gen Z council. But when I first started their sustainability board, one of the people on it was like Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, yeah, Yeah, So it was like, Whoa. And then, like, it was, like, published in my school's, like, we have something called, like, this, this kind of, like, blog, school blog, Mm -hmm. Um, so we were, we were actually doing something with the great Gatsby in class, and, like, then we, like, watched the movie for fun, and they were, like, oh, okay, like, do you know um, Jay Gatsby, because, like, he's Leo DiCaprio, it it was, it was kind of very awkward and and embarrassing, I think that's, like, a weird thing to be embarrassed about, but it was just, like, (laughs) a weird experience I'm embarrassed but I about was-
1: knowing Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was, it was definitely like fun in the sense that it was like, wow, I'm very shocked that this is happening. Like I had just joined, I did the urgent company and then I joined perfect day and they were like, Hey, do you want to be on this board? And I was like, Whoa, of course. Um, And it was just like a really surprising thing that happened. But, but yeah, I think that was one of the main things also like meeting different researchers, um, that I'd been seeing online. Like um, for example, the head of the fluid interfaces lab, Patty Mays, I had seen her do like an interview with, I forget who it was from Microsoft, but it was like one of the C-suites or Microsoft. I was like, wow, this lady's really, really cool. Um, and then I got to meet her of course via zoom, but it was still like, wow, I'm just like meeting all of these different people, people who have like the, um, the Google knowledge panel, like when you look them up, like it says their, their thing. (laughs) So it's just like, wow, this is so crazy Um, being able to meet so many different people. And I think that's been kind of like the most eye opening thing is that really nobody's that mean that they won't want to talk to you. I mean, some people are, but I think most um, people that you look up to honestly are just like the reason they're hard to reach is because they're so busy or sometimes they don't even like manage their own emails. Um, so I think when you do get to meet them, you just realize how open people are and how social, even even people who are like introverted can be very social. Um, so I just think it's like a really interesting experience to know, like, wow, these people are actually human. Like on the way to my talk, this is actually a really funny. story. On the way to my talk, I bumped into the president of Microsoft and I was like, oh, you're Brad Smith. <laughs> he was like, what are the like, chances? Wow. Yeah. It was really crazy. And he was like, yep. And then I just kept going. I didn't even say anything else. I was like, hi, it's super yep. cool that you're here. <laughs> he was just like, yeah. And then I was like, wow, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just like things like that because you see these people. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are like very successful people. Like you can imagine he's the president of Microsoft. Of course, he's like doing very well. Um, he's also like a really famous attorney and all that. So it was just like, these people actually exist in real life. You might actually see them. Like, I think it was a similar thing to like a celebrity experience, except with like a tech celebrity. Cause I, I don't know many people would be that like, I don't know that many people who would be like so excited about meeting Brad Smith if they didn't know who he actually was. <laughs> but if you're in the tech space, it's a pretty cool thing. So I think it's just like, wow, these people are real people who you've, you can interact with who are actually like very nice and sociable. Like one of my, one of my director slash friends, he met like Craig Federighi at the same event. I don't know how to say his last name. Federighi, Federighi. I'm not sure. Hopefully if I meet him again, I'll ask him, um, but he's super cool. He's in like all the Apple event ads and things that like he presents all the new phones and stuff like that. Um, I think he's like the head, he's like one of their heads of, um, like one of the computer fields. Um, but it's just really, really interesting. Like you see these people on videos and like in all these places, and then you see them actually walking around, like being normal people. It also humanizes them in, in an aspect because it really takes away that feeling like, whoa, these people are just like so far away, so amazing. They're from Mars. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but no, they're just like normal people who just are in that position because they did X, Y, and Z. So I, I think that has been like the biggest, craziest thing. And like, sometimes I just sit and think about it. I'm like, wow, this is, I'm very lucky. <laughs> but yeah, that's, those have been kind of like the main experiences that I've had.
1: Yeah, and a quick follow-up to that. Um, I know there's like different, views on luck. Um, if you've heard of like the four types of luck and how, you know, you can be lucky by just like sitting there, or you can be lucky by, um, moving around, bumping into a lot of opportunities and getting luck, or uh, I forgot one of them, but I know the last one's attracting luck. Um, Mm -hmm. so how, how do you think you like kind of engineer luck in this way to be able to bump into so many cool people and, um, you know, uh, be able to be a part of these rooms where a lot of cool people are. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things I like to do is like, I think I'm like the kind of, I forget what it's called, but it's like directing motion or whatever. It was like one of the four types that you were talking about. Uh I think I'm the one that like puts myself in so many, like puts myself out there to so many different people that it gives me just like a naturally higher chance of getting some sort of successes. So I think that's like the biggest thing that I've done that's been helpful um, and I'd say that's like kind of unique to myself is that I'm really not afraid to reach out to like anyone now. Like I will reach out as many times as I need to like do follow-ups, um, just messaging people. I think I've gotten pretty good at like that, that emailing game. Like huh. there was one company that I was looking at that I was just really interested in emailed the founders, the, like one of the co-founders, they responded. So it's like things like that. It's like, um, it's just been an amazing kind of luck engineering, like you called it um, where you're just putting yourself in so many spaces and, you know, emails don't take that long. So it's not like a huge commitment, um, Mm -hmm. to just go out, email people. Um, and, you know, hopefully you get responses and the more people you email, the higher chance that you'll have at least one response. Um, and I think doing that has been helpful. Of course, there are like other ways that you can have that. Like sometimes you just meet people, um, I think meeting people is actually the best one um, because emailing people sometimes is a low chance. Sometimes it'll go to your their junk, spam mail. You just don't know what happens after you send the email. But when you are able to like meet a friend of a friend of a friend, um, eventually you'll get connected to the right people. So I think that's one of the biggest ones, especially for high school students. Um, I think sometimes it's easier to like meet people, show your personality, um, and you'll ultimately get connected with so many different people along the way.
1: Definitely, yeah. I mean, this podcast came from a cold demo too, so. Yeah,
2: see? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's really it's really about um, just reaching out. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great way to end up. You know, you can engineer your own luck, and whoever's listening to this, um, definitely shoot more cold emails, and who knows where you end up. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. This is a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about yeah. a lot, from like the yeah. CI's to your research on, uh, like at the MIT Media Lab, um, like unique life experiences, yeah. There's just so much that like this conversation touched upon. I'm really glad we were able to go on this this conversational journey.
2: Yeah, it was so awesome. I'm really really glad to have been on this podcast. Very unique. I've actually been seeing it around LinkedIn, so it's really oh. exciting when you reached out. Yeah.
1: Oh great, yeah. I'm glad. Um, and yeah, it was really great having you on. And I'm I'm I hope the listeners also enjoyed this. Um, if you're listening to this right now, thank you so much for listening. And I'll link below some description um, notes, as well as some links that you can uh, find to at if you're open to that. Um, and also, uh, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive these types of podcast episodes every other week. All right, with that, see you guys next time.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Delta X Podcast with Ellen Shu.